Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1972 Francis Ford Coppola film, The Godfather. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Barrett, I think like 94 movies in, we finally earned like talking about, you know, one of the most canonical American films. So, so like if you do a movie like this episode two or three, it feels like an obvious choice. This actually feels like a surprising choice this deep in to be like, oh, we're going to watch this thing that um, that both of us, I assume, are are very familiar with and that I would assume a lot of listeners are really familiar with. Um uh, but here's the question that I want to ask, um, and I'm going to ask the same question I always start with, but I'm, I'm interested in a particular kind of way, which is, what is your history with this film? Because I will say, because of my age, this movie has always been a canonically like great and important film. I, I don't know when I first became aware of it, but I've always known it to be that. So when I first watched this, I was watching this in the way you read um, Shakespeare or Catcher in the Rye or something where it's like you're already told this is great and this is important. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always have a kind of distance from it. I'm curious, uh, 1972, when this movie comes out, did you have a chance to experience this before it was a canonical movie? No, uh, okay. I, was a li- I was a little too young. Um, so I was 14 when it came out. So my memory of the film is actually the memory of the Academy Award ceremony at which Brando did not take the Oscar uh, and had uh, the Native American woman take it for him. So I sort of knew about the film that way, in a sense. I'm trying to remember because I knew you would ask him. So, you know, when did I actually see it? As far as I know, I've never seen it in the theater which is why the re-release, and as our listeners probably know, the film is being re-released, which is one reason why I picked it for this particular week. Um, the re-release is interesting to me because I would love to see it in the theater with the actual lighting that uh, Gordon Willis actually intended. I picked it up years later. Um, I, I, By the time, gosh, I must have watched it before 1990, but I certainly watched it at one point. I watched it before 1990 at some point. And then after 1990, I watched all three in, in, uh, in succession. You know, this one, Godfather, to Godfather Three, so uh, but yeah, it was already it was already a classic by the time I saw it. Yeah, so I, like I said, I feel like I have I, I love Coppola is probably one of my favorite filmmakers because he made uh, two or three of my favorite films. Like I love the Godfather, I love Godfather One and Two. I haven't seen Three in a long time, and I'm really interested to see the uh, is it called the Godfather Coda? Is that how he yeah, is? Re- yeah, re- yeah. Um, and I will say, and I think I talked about this with you off air last week. Um, uh, oh, about a week and a half ago, my daughter and I um, watched his re-release and recut of The Outsiders. Mm-hmm. Um, and it went from a movie which was a curiosity but not that good to something that I think is actually a really good movie. So I'm curious to see what he, how he kind of reworks uh, Godfather Three, which I saw kind of probably around the same time you did, which is, you know, I, there was a moment in the kind of mid nineties when I watched my way through them. Now I probably watched Godfather one, two, and three on three straight days. So I don't, I never had this kind of distance to process one before I saw the other, which is probably a mistake um, in, in hindsight, um, because even watching this, I, this movie lives in the shadow of its sequel. Because you're like, okay, because I imagine watching this in 1972 and there's so many things that if this was the only thing that have this kind of mystery to it, but I'm watching this, I watch this, you know, realizing like, oh yeah, in Godfather 2, they, you learn about who Clemenza is more and you learn about this and you, and there, and this stuff is sort of blown out more. Uh, Now, Godfather 2 is a great movie, but it, it, this oddly, this first one lives Mm-hmm. They live in the shadow of each other, maybe, as a way to yeah. think about it, that, that they, they really do exist, which is maybe, you know, one of the greatest uh, cases to be made for, for a sequel existing is like that they actually inform each other in, in, uh, in such powerful and interesting ways. Yeah, I, mean, I, think, um, you know, I think you can argue that. I mean, I like what you said about them existing in the shadow of each other. But, you know, I think even if you only have the Godfather, you've really got everything you need to know. I mean, I mean, I mean, everything that happens is either a deepening backwards into the backstory, a lot of which you can infer, or it's a projection forward. I mean, you already know by the end of Godfather, you can see that Michael is going to be the Michael of Godfather two and, th- and three. And it's interesting to watch that play out 
But if I had to only have one of the three, it would still have to be this one. Um, not only for that reason, but also because otherwise you don't have Marlon Brando. Right. Uh, and you can't have the Godfather without Marlon Brando. I 100% agree. I, I know that a lot of people make the case for Godfather 2 being a superior film. And it might be. I haven't seen that in a while. But um, but one is pretty magnificent it's pretty it's pretty amazing the uh kind of what's going on here um we talked at the uh, before we recorded this is going to be a really difficult conversation to have in part because what hasn't already been said about the godfather but uh, we're going to try to organize this in, in in some way um uh, for one thing i'm always fascinated by the idea of the great american blank whether it is you know, things that are considered in the conversation for what is the great American novel or what is the great American album or what is the thing that like makes this kind of definitive statement that says like this actually tells us something. And and and, and I'm less interested in what the answer is and I'm more interested in what the, the conversation is. I love that this movie opens um, as if to say. I, I am applying for the job of the great American movie. You know, before you see a character on the screen, you hear the line, I believe in America. And it's like, okay, like uh, it is a statement of intent about what the, the rest of this movie is going to be when you hear bon, uh, um say that. Uh, and I want to get into that, that whole opening. Um, but I guess maybe like, like how, how does this movie, um, maybe make its case to be, you know, to be like, this is the, the great, the, the great cinematic statement about America. Well, I think, I think there's lots of ways to kind of approach that, Sam. Um, the first, the first, first of all, I want to say before I forget to mention is that that opening is Coppola's innovation. The Puzo novel does not open that way. So he did the screenplay with Puzo and they kind of went back and forth but he was the one who had the genius of knowing that that was that was the right dramatic opening uh that uh that he saw well one of the things i i learned in, in researching a little bit is that is that puzo actually was inspired by the great western writer zane gray uh and specifically zane gray's heritage of the desert 1910 novel so there's a sense in which you know Pete, you can argue that the western which we just got through with right that the western is kind of the great original american genre um and puzo in a sense saw the gangster film the mob film as a kind of reinterpretation of of the western and that you have this world in which um you have powerful entities that have moral codes or ethical codes by which they live and decisions are made uh often at the point of a gun or reinforced by by the gun so i think there's that sense in which you could say the gangster movie or the mafia movie despite the fact that it's supposed to be very italian right it's ultimately rooted in 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 the, in the western um another way in which i think this is making a claim to be the american story is that it's also a story about capitalism um, it's a story about, you know, what it takes to be a successful enterprise in America. It's also a story about the family. And that's what's brilliant about the first part of this film, anyway, and, and how the business of the family and the business of the business uh, are, are kind of both kept separate and at the same time united. It's a story about ambition, right? And that's what Godfather Part Two really plays out, how it is that Vito Corleone became Vito Corleone. So I think all those American ideas that, you know, you get you get ahead by hard, by hard work. Um, and this is the kind of hard work that the, the, the gang does. And, but also, you know, the belief in America is also the belief in justice. Uh, and that's what Bonsoray is, is expressing. And there is a kind of code of justice that rules in the, in the, in the mafia world. So I think all of those kind of, I mean, that's a rich mix of American ideals, if you want. And I think that's what the film lays claim to. Well, and I, and I would add to that, it is also an immigrant story. Mm -hmm. which which i think is a is a core piece of of um thinking about this as as the american story uh in some ways I, it's it's so interesting cuz i had this i you, you jumped right into my next set of notes which was it's so interesting to watch this movie after watching the the series of westerns that we watch cuz i mean so many of those you know we could look at either between movies or within movies about sort of these competing views of america kind of law versus lawlessness um this this idea of the frontier um you know because even you can think about um Salazzo 
is uh, introducing a new frontier for mm-hmm, these mm-hmm. crime families to be like, okay, the, the, the new frontier is narcotics. And then there is this question of what is our relationship to that? You know, are we so settled in this that we don't go in that direction? There's, there's some danger. And even at the end of the film, right, there is this push West, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. which is also the, the sort of Westward movement uh, to, to, to a land of opportunity. I mean, Las Vegas is, is sort of viewed as that. And that's the, that becomes the, uh, the part of the power play um, of moving West. Um, I love how that Bonacera speech uh, at the beginning really sets, like you said, it, it, it sort of sets everything up. It even tells us, um, it tells us a version of Michael's story of what's going to be Michael's story. Cause Bonacera's story is about, I mean, it opens with the line, I believe in America, but when you continue into his story, it's about how America has failed him, how the, mm-hmm. how the justice system has failed him. So now he is turning to this other thing. And Michael, we, you know, we learn is, um, uh, is the, the member of the Corleone family that is supposed to be the one who, like Bonacero wanted to have a legitimate business, right? Mm-hmm. Michael is the one who's supposed to be legitimate at the end. Vito says, you know, you were supposed to be Senator Corleone or Governor Corleone, but instead you've gotten pulled into this mm-hmm. um, because, because of failings, right? Because of the, you know, the, the, or, or, or the perception that the American system of justice has failed and he's gotten pulled into these other things. I mean, I think his, his interaction with McCluskey is, is kind of a, a turning point in that. Um, where the uh, the you know he where, where where he realizes you know and it's it's funny because like like what we keep hearing about Vito is that he has the senators and the judges in his pocket but now there's somebody else who has an American authority in his uh, in uh, Salazzo and and uh, Barzini have the police force or at least McCluskey so 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 there is that sort of failing of the dream of America that ends up turning Michael uh, away from that. Uh, yeah, but I think the other thing that happens with Michael is, um, you know, he's he's got that line early on when they talk about what what they should do to uh, respond to Vito's shooting, right? And and the, you hear this line a couple of times. It's not personal; it's business. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's and, and of course that's the tension that Vito. That's the tension that Vito maintains really well, right? I mean, I think that you know he ma- he maintains that tension between the family. And, and, and the business and Michael, Michael sees them as separate, but at the same time, he ultimately commits to the, to the business. Um, there's a couple of kind of key scenes that symbolize that, you know, one is when he goes into the, um, the telephone booth to find out what happened to his father and he, and he closes the door on, on, uh, on, um, okay. on and then, of course, that's the last shot of the film, you know, when he closes the door on Kay. Uh, and so I think there's a sense with Michael that it's not personal as business becomes becomes both a split and ultimately becomes all about the business. So the, the version of the family that you're going to have by the end of the film with Michael is not a family at all. It, it is. It is, in fact, simply a, a, a corporate uh, as Bruce Springsteen says, is murder incorporated uh, by by the by the end. So I think that's that to me is one of the really interesting arcs of, of, of the film uh, that, mm-hmm. that you see that he's unable to kind of hold those two things in tension the way Vito, his father, does. Well, and 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 you know when when, when Vito sees. Uh sees these issues his his response is to call the five families together and try to broker a truce michael's response of dealing with the business is to just wipe the other people out like yeah, right. you know in 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 a in a grand montage you know like let, let uh, uh take everybody up another interesting thing that i never i shouldn't say i never thought about but it's interesting to think about in light of the series of movies we watched before the westerns was, was about movies about people coming home from world war ii and this is also a story about someone coming home from World War II that, you know, that that's not a huge piece of this. But there is this, you know, there is this sense of like, uh, I think um, when they're talking about what to do with McCluskey and Salazzo, you know, where they're um, Sonny is, is sort of kind of talking to Michael about like, you know, basically how Michael's not a killer and doesn't understand that. And there is this we don't get a lot of like what Michael's experience in the war was in terms of like is he haunted by that? But there's enough, uh, you know, potential darkness around the edges of, of, of Michael. And part of that might be reflecting on sort of what his family is. Like he says to Kay, like, that's, that's my family. That's not me. 
Um, but 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 I think that is interesting to think about. You know that that is that going off to war was one of the like as as that generation returns. That's one of the roads to success and legitimacy, like coming back and then establishing, you know, your business or what, or whatever. Um, so this is a, another version of the soldier returning from war. That's, you know, that, but the idea that he says, that's not, that's my family. That's not me. Um, that that's such a familiar trope from, from classic tragedies, right? The, 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 the notion that you are somehow born into something and no matter what you do to resist that, you know, in our day and age, we would call it gene. We would say genetics. Uh, the ancient world, it was the gods. Uh, either way, there's no. Some, there, there are these forces greater than you, which will ultimately compel you into certain kinds of behavior. So I think that's that's Michael's. I think it's his naivete. I think it's his. Um, it's his aspiration, uh, because as as you already alluded to at the end, his father, you know, wanted him to be kind of a legitimate Corleone. He's gone to college, I, 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 and and he's been in the army. You know, he's kind of done everything right. But the the irony, of course, is that he gets pulled back in because of his love for his father, and 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 because he is the favorite son. And so so that's the part where Vito maybe has miscalculated because if you're going to dote on this son and make it clear he is your favorite. Um, uh, don't be surprised when he becomes the, the new Don and when, in fact, he is actually better equipped to be the Don than either, either of his brothers. Yeah. And I mean, it is, I think it's interesting. You, you talked about this, you know, like <laughs> the gods or, or genetics or fate. And then I do feel like as much as this story is, um, you know, in some ways you could summarize what is this movie about in like two or three sentences. At the same time, it is this, there is this kind of epic scope to it. There's all of this detail and the plot can get very confusing if you're not tracking. The first time you watch it, it's hard to track all of the names because they'll, they just sort of fly by uh, and it's worth the investment of figuring out, okay, well, who is Tatalia and who is Barzini and who is this and this, um, it, the story gets, gets uh, richer with that, right? So it's, it is both this simple story about this kind of generational exchange and this, um, I don't know if it's a rise or fall of of Michael as he as he becomes uh, his father's successor, uh, but it makes me think about others. I mean, like like this is not Lear, but this is a story about succession mm-hmm. and kind of how we you know how we think about those things. And I, I think it's it's interesting to think about the uh, the four sons and how all of them how different all of them are and how um, you know the. The direction the story takes if you if 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 any of those sons become the successor i've always i've always been fascinated by tom hagan mm-hmm. because he's because he's not uh he's not a son in the same way but I mean, he, he both is and isn't um you know whenever, whenever i see uh whenever i see uh, a constellation of a father and four sons i also think about like the brothers karamazov now this is a very different story than that but there is this sense of like you know all of them are heightened in particular ways like michael is this is is very like cold and calculating in terms of kind of how he approaches things. Sonny is, you know, the embodiment of emotion and, you know, mm-hmm. in, in certain ways, uh, Fredo is weak. I don't know what else I would say about, <laughs> you know, about him. I, I wish, I wish there was like a more positive quality. And then, and, and in some ways, like, like Tom is the one who I feel like is the closest to what Vito's actually like in some ways. Mm-hmm. But he's also he has the his flaw, his fatal flaw is that he's not actually a son. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I want to pick up on what you, on your your brief reference to to uh, to Lear, uh, Sam, because I think that it gets back to the, the opening question about, you know, is this the great American movie? But I think one of the things the film has is it has a lot of those kind of um uh, mythological, uh, I guess, if you want to call it, kind of um, resonances. I mean, we, I mean, th- th- we had this conversation when we talked a little bit about High Noon, about the idea, you know, is High Noon a, essentially a Western or not? And I think one of the things that's, that's great about this film is, is it a gangster film or quintessentially it's a gangster film? But it's also a film about all these other issues that we've been talking about that you can place in almost any genre, Fam- family dynamics, destiny, uh, justice, love, family. I mean, your reference to Brothers Karamazov is perfect because we had a line where we, we talked about uh, Lear, Brothers Karamazov, and The Godfather all in the same breath. And so I think that's one of the things that raises this film to, uh, to, to, to the point where 50 years later, I don't think it's aged a bit. 
Um, and some of the issues in this film have kept playing out. I keep thinking about this issue of what does it be to, mean to be a good Don and thinking about uh, Tony Soprano uh, and his whole arc through, through, through that series and how that really kind of engages. I mean, really every mob film after The Godfather has had in one way or another to come to reference, uh, reference the, God, the Godfather. And I want to well, say one thing that's tangentially related, but I want to say before I forget about the opening of the film and our response to Vito, because one thing to remember when that film opens, we are Vito, because Monsera is speaking directly to us. So one of the things I think it's interesting about this film is how sympathetic Vito is for us, despite the fact that he's, you know, he's a cold-blooded murderer, but we, we identify with him. And, and that's because Coppola makes us literally identify with him at the beginning of the film. Well, and it's interesting because this this film, like, I was trying to think this morning, like, like what is the what is the point of view character for this as a as a viewer, and like, you know, and and it's interesting because, like you said, it, it from the the first shot we're put in Vito's point of view, but in some ways, Kay Adams, for most of us who probably aren't involved in in the mafia, is, but she gets shut out from it. So she both is for like in that wedding scene, we get to kind of be someone like Kay, who's like sort of learning about, okay, well, what, well, who are these people? What are these things? I'm thankful when Michael gives some explanations, you're like, okay, now I know who Luca Brazzi is and I know this. Um, and then, and then she like disappears from the movie for uh, understandably for, for, for chunks of the movie. So she's so the, the, like there, you're getting different um, kind of point of view characters. And there's lots of times where Michael is your point of view character as well. It's like, once you've learned the business a little bit, partway through the movie, then it becomes, um, you can, I feel like then, then you can, then you slip can slip into Michael's point of view a little bit, um, a little bit as well. Um, I love that whole, I can't believe it's 26 minutes long. The, how, how, because what's weird is as I was writing my notes about the, about the wedding scene, the first thing I wrote is how, and this is, it's a weird word to use for a 20 minute segment at the beginning of a three hour movie, but like how efficiently, <laughs> It does what it's doing, even though it's unbelievably long. Like you, it introduces almost everybody. It's so much fun if, you, if this is the first time you watch this movie to go back and watch the wedding and realize everybody's there. Like you can go through and point out, you know, little things like you see Polly kind of lusting over the the bag of money, and it's like, oh, and Polly's mm -hmm. one of the people who is gonna who's gonna turn on him, and you know, you notice all these, you know, kind of all these little pieces that way. So it is both efficient, but it also definitely takes its time building out the world. So it tells you what the movie is going to be as well, which is the movie moves through things very quickly in some ways, but at the same time, it slowly takes its time building the world out. It, it does those two things simultaneously, which um, I feel like is, is masterful. I don't quite understand. I don't quite understand how this feels like such a, uh, a three-hour movie that flies by, but also feels like you settle in at the same time. I think that's exactly true, Sam. Because you know, I I tend not to be the fan of long movies, but I I fully agree. This is this couldn't be any shorter, and uh, it was shorter, as you probably know. Coppola was originally told he had to deliver a two-hour movie, and he delivered a two-hour movie. And Robert Evans, who'd seen Rushes, basically told him put those put those things back in. Uh, so, you know, so three hours is, is what he really needs to get the thing done. But that, that opening wedding scene, you're right, is 25, 26 minutes. It is kind of a, it, it's really a film in itself. Uh, and it, it's, a, and as you already observed, it's kind of a wonderful synecdoche for the film as a whole, not only in terms of introducing all the characters, but in terms of introducing that, um, light, light versus darkness, right? That, you know, the film is famous for being so dark, right? And, and in fact, that was part of the, the part of the problem when the rushes were first shown that it was so dark that Evan said he couldn't see what was going on. Gordon Willis, the cinematographer, was nicknamed the Prince of Darkness. So, um, so you have these, you know, dark interior scenes, which, you know, I'm a former English, prof English professor, so I'm going to say, look at the symbolism there, right? So you have this very dark interiors, and then you have the deliberately kind of overexposed uh, wedding scene and so and, and he so he kind of lay and he lays out all the themes we've been talking about he lays out the family uh, role he lays out the role of the godfather he lays out the call for justice i mean it, it's a brilliant way of taking the in a sense the whole movie expands on those 20 on those 25 minutes it's 
I, I can't think of many other films that do that. I mean, a lot of films have little expositions to kind of set it up, but this film gives you the mini film within the film. I mean, because you, you get the Fed showing up, so you've got the conflict with the law. I mean, it's it's kind of all there. Absolutely. Um, well, one of the things that 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 I I want to go back to something you said about the the um, starting with with Vito's point of view um, and making him sympathetic. This is one of the things Roger Ebert talked a lot about. Um, that is, and I think partially I don't have the I don't have a great history of uh, mob <coughs> movies or crime movies. They, they kind of start with this, so everything that I've seen or really paid a lot of attention to are things which come after this, which again live in its shadow. So I to the point where I kept thinking of scenes that I was waiting for. And then I realized, Oh, that's in Goodfellas. That's not even in this movie. You know, like, like when Clemenza's cooking, I was expecting him to talk about like slicing the, uh, the, the uh, garlic with thin with the razor. And then I realized that's not even this movie. That's another movie that is playing off of this movie. Um, and so, so, so all that is to say, I don't have, I don't know what the, the sort of long history before this is uh, of these things, but Ebert talks about how, one of the things that uh, Coppola does really carefully is he never shows you. This is a movie with a lot of violence and a lot of killing. I think 18 people are killed on screen um, and a horse. Um, but the only people you see die are people who are part of this web of crime, even though these are people where if you, I mean, I realize the Corleones are in the olive oil business, but <laughs> They are in some other business as well, and you never see the victims of that. And if, because if you did, it would be harder to be sympathetic towards some of these people. And the, and the movie needs you to 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 be sympathetic towards Vito to to sort of get to to want to do enough of the work to empathize with these people to get into that story. So, um, so he he kind of keeps it within this closed world a little bit. But when you step away, you also need to. You also are forced to reckon with the fact that um, there are a lot of victims of what of what these people do. Um, so I find that really. I mean, the, the only there, there's moments where you touch the edges of it, like the conversation about narcotics, right? And they they start to talk about well, what this means. And I mean, Vito even says something like how gambling and prostitution are victimless crimes, or something like that. You know that that those are just some things that people want to do, and we provide that for them, not really thinking about. Um, or, or you know, about the so the sort of real issues with that. But I think that that is a an, an interesting way that they keep you within this pretty tight world in order to force you to empathize. I think. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, that, yeah, I think that that's a really good point, Sam. And I kind of want to go back to Vito and um, not wanting to go into into the heroin business, right? And 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 you know, as as I watch that scene, you know, I I always wonder is he you know, is he actually angling for a different approach or does he really not want to get into this? Because, you know, Tom has told him earlier, I mean, this is the future. You know, if we don't get into this, we're going to be we're going to be um, outclassed within within 10 years. But but Vito, I mean, he has he has an ethical code. And you may say that's a pretty warped ethical code, right? It's OK to do gambling and prostitution because less they are not victimless crimes. Uh, but let's not do drugs. But at least that's I mean, at least that's a code, whereas and, and, and it's a code that he lives by in order to provide for the family. So not to belabor the point, but Michael, by contrast, he doesn't have a code. In, his, Michael's only code is power and money. And he excludes the family, as we already pointed out, he excludes Kay. And his future is not going to be to be the kind of Don that his father was. So I think one of the ways in which, again, we have that sympathy for, for, for the Godfather is because we see him in his own way valuing things that we can value. He values his family. He makes ethical and moral distinctions. And Michael doesn't seem to do that. And so I think that's another reason why we feel sympathy for Vito. We also feel sympathy for Vito because if he is the leader character, who can't feel for a, an old man? Right, um, he's a, and and having him be shot is a great mo is a great ploy because um, because it just develops more sympathy for him. And actually, from that point on, he's he's frailer. Uh, he's you know clearly kind of on on his on his way out, and that's that adds to the sympathy. Um, so, what was the 
I mean, can you give a, a, a brief capsule history of what like mafia mob crime movies were like before this? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, it, it may be the case in the coming weeks that we visit a few of those. Okay. Um, not to tip my hand. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it was a genre that was considered pretty, pretty played out. Um, there had been a film in 60, 69, I think it was. It was a Burt Lancaster film called The Brotherhood. Uh, that did very, very poorly. Um, and there was rumors that Lancaster was actually interested in getting the rights to The Godfather. But most people thought the gangster film was kind of played out. And you didn't see anything that had this uh, quite the rich complexity of the family relationship you're seeing this. It tended much more to be, I, I will give you the five big gangster films of, of the 30s um, in kind of chronological order. You had Little Caesar with Edward G. Robinson, uh, The Public Enemy with Jimmy Cagney, uh, Scarface with Paul Mooney, Angel's Dirty Faces, which is Cagney and Bogart, and The Roaring Twenties with George Raft. Uh, and in all those films, there's very much a focus on a singular character, whether it's the titular Scarface or Little Caesar or the public enemy. And it's kind of about all about his rise through the ranks and then his, his, his destruction by, by the authorities. But he's usually a singular figure, or maybe he has a girl by his side, and, or often, famously in the case of Cagney, a mother figure. Um, but there is not, none of this. It's, it's very much um, it's very much about the feds versus the criminal, the gangster and how the feds ultimately win. Uh, there's a heavy moral tone. These are all uh, well, a couple of them are hate, pre pre code, but most of them are Hayes code productions. So it's, it doesn't have any of the um, I mean, they, they are interesting films in their own right. And I like some of them, but they're they're nothing like The Godfather in terms of the kind of rich tapestry that, that The Godfather creates. There really hasn't been anything like that before Coppola came along. And that sort of Coppola's, that, that's one thing that's remarkable about Coppola, that he follows, he follows some of the patterns. You know, you get the, you, you do get the classic uh, standoff with the feds and you do get the notion that, you know, it, they're ultimately, uh, they're ultimately going to be shootouts and all that stuff, got lots of killings. But what's different is the way that he, creates these um, kind of psychological uh, depths to the film, which, you know, which is rare. Yeah. I, I, I also find interesting how, you know, we talked about how the wedding scene feels like a mini movie in and of itself. And then I feel like the other thing with, with having knowledge of future movies, I keep, there's also things that are in this movie that I forget are part of the first movie. So um, every time I watch this, every time I watch this, I think, Oh, remembering Godfather 2 when Michael goes to Italy and lives? Because that feels like an entirely different thing. And then I get into this movie and realize, oh, that happens in this movie. Or when they, that, that you, like, I think Mo Green is a character from Godfather 2 because there's more of the Vegas stuff there. And it's like, wait, that's he, all his whole arc is in this movie. Um, you know, so, mm -hmm. so I, I'm, I'm always amazed how it feels like the, the killing of Salazzo, like that feels like a separate movie too. And then it's like, mm -hmm. and then we have this, uh, then we have the movie of Sonny as Godfather and Michael in Italy. And then we have Michael at home. It feels like there's four distinct um, acts or chapters um, in this movie. And um, one of the things that I, that I really appreciated this time around was trying to, was paying attention to the ways that, that Michael and Vito are doubled in this movie mm -hmm. where you'll see Vito do something early and then you'll see Michael do the same thing later, but maybe the the situation has changed, or 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 kind of you're seeing both how they're doubling, but also how they're different. So, um, uh, in very early in the movie, when they're having the first conversation about Salazzo and narcotics, uh, Vito reprimands Sonny for for basically speaking at that move, like saying mm -hmm. your thoughts in front of somebody not in the family, and then later in Vegas, Michael. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, reprimands Fredo, you know, kind of in, in, in a very similar way. Both of them are uh, betrayed and almost killed by their basically closest body man, Paulie and Fabrizio. Um, mm -hmm. Both of them take a sacrament of the church and use that as a point to do their business, right? So you have the wedding at the beginning. I mean, what you see Vito doing is a whole bunch of his business, which includes setting up, um, you know, setting up at least beating up the, uh, the, 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 the folks who assaulted Bonacera's daughter. So he's doing some pretty violent business there. And then for Michael, it's a baptism, right? And, and, and that's, it's, he uses that as, uh, as the, the, the sort of moment when he 
you know, takes out basically all of the other family. So I, I love that doubling. Like I said, it's a doubling, but it's also a it's showing you how their arcs are similar, but also how they're different. And then what I love is that that then becomes the structure for Godfather too. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, now let's really double them. And let's <laughs> and let's literally make movies where we're watching them kind of you know back and forth uh, in time. So I feel like he's. I mean, I don't I don't know if how much the idea of Godfather two was in the minds of anybody as as they were making this. But it is interesting how you get to the end and realize. Oh, they've already they've already set up what's going to be the theme of this next one in some subtle in some subtler ways in this movie. Yeah, it also reminds me that uh, one of the Oscars the film did not get was the editing Oscar, which I think I, I think it absolutely should have gotten the editing Oscar. Um, but also that that doubling, as you were saying, Sam, that that's that reinforces the notion of the power of literal power of blood. Right. So the, the fact that he truly is his father's son and he is um, we are aware of the doubling. Um, he might be aware of it in, in, in terms of his rebuke to Fredo, but uh, he's probably not thinking about it consciously in terms of the baptism doubling the, uh, the wedding sacrament. So I think that that's the case where the where the structure, a good example of how the structure of the work of art reinforces the theme of the work of art. Um, uh couple of other things uh I, we just need to talk about cast for a little bit this is is this the best cast movie of all time in terms of in terms of like like powerhouse and 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 you know something that i'll say coppola is good at is uh taking a bunch of young actors and um you know book in some ways before they're as big as they're going to be there is there are lots of people who whose careers launch from this. So, I mean, uh, but you got to start with Brando, who obviously is not somebody who's launched by this movie. But um, uh, for one thing, I I was taken aback when I realized he's three years older than me when he made this movie. He's 47. <laughs> um, uh, and I, I've seen some young Brando performances. I love him in Apocalypse Now, although that's a very strange performance. Um, he is so good in this movie. Uh, I, I'm... I, and it's what's funny because it's one of those roles that is so parodied that it feels like it should be ruined by the parody. But when you watch the actual thing, it's he's he's better than other people at this, I think, <laughs> at acting, right? Yeah, and you know, so you know, speaking of the casting, um, and also speaking. This one of the reasons why. Let me back up just a little bit. One of the reasons why this movie has the status it has is not only because it's a great movie the way we've been talking about it, but because its production was so troubled and legendary. Um, it was, you know, Paramount was a studio was in a lot of trouble, um, and supposedly Coppola was fired four times from the film, and the stories just go on and on about the difficulties making this film. But Coppola kept winning most of his battles. So one of the battles he won was the casting battle. Uh, and Brando, uh, Brando had had a series of flops. He really hadn't been in a hit film in years. So he was, he was Brando, but he wasn't the Brando of the, of the 50s and early 60s. So getting Brando, which was, and he, you know, he said he had Brando in mind from the beginning. He said he had Pacino in mind from the, from the beginning. Pacino uh, had had a lot of success on the stage in New York, um, but he'd only been in one film, Panic in Needle Park. Um, so he was, this was really, as you said, launching his career. People like uh, Duval, uh, Duval had been around for about 10 years, wasn't by any means a big star, but he was, you know, fairly established. I don't remember how far, how long Jimmy Conn had been around. Uh, basically, it was a, close to a film debut for Diane Keaton. Um, so yeah, he really had a genius about knowing the right actors to pick. And watching this, this film made me sad, a little sad in that I thought, yeah, Al Pacino used to be able to really act. He didn't always just chew up the scenery. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a quiet performance, which is really fantastic about it. It's a, it's a boil, he, he's boiling under, underneath. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a great cast in that, in that respect, not to mention all the wonderful supporting actors. Well, that's what I want to talk about. And, and this, this person actually has a pretty small, small role when you figure he's part of the Corleone family, but this is also the beginning of the amazing and tragic career of John Cazale. Mm-hmm. Um, he's in five, only five feature films. All of them are nominated for best picture. I think three of them win best picture. Um, and, uh, so he, he plays Fredo and I, and he is, I, I love John Cazale. I, I love, I mean, I've seen all 
it's not hard to see the five movies he's in because they're all great movies. Um, uh, do you have of the like smaller side small characters? Do you have people that jump out to you or that that you particularly look forward to seeing when they appear on screen? Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, I'm afraid I'm, I'm going to butcher his name because, but but it's the uh, it, it's the it's the it's the um, the leave the leave the gun to take the cannoli. Oh, Clemenza. Yeah. Clemenza, uh, Clemenza. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, yeah, I, I, whenever Clemenza comes on, I just brighten up. Um, yeah. Clemenza. And, and I guess I got a soft spot for Abe Vigoda. Uh, of course, you know, I know him from Barney Miller later the, the sitcom, but it, I, I like seeing Abe Vigoda show up as well. Well, and let me tell you a Clemenza story because this talk, it speaks to how just rooted a film like this is in people's in at least I think in, in, in Americans consciousness um, a few years ago, uh, Chris Gertz and I were teaching a course on world war one. Um, and we ended the course in Munich and we were standing in front of the building where the Munich conference took place. And I turned to Chris and said, you know what Clemenza said, if you'd only, if we'd only stopped Hitler at Munich and it's like, and it's like, we both were thinking the same thing. It's like, for some reason we're at, you know, we're, we're in this historic location teaching about the, the origins of world war two. And both of us are thinking about the Godfather. And it's one of my favorite little, just Clemenza moments. Like he's, he's a student of history and he's, you know, and he's going to apply that to um, to, to sort of what's happening, uh, what's happening with the family. One of the things, uh, did you read the Pauline Kael review of this? I, I did. I, I, I read up, I, I read a quote from it, but I did not go back. Okay. It's really good. Uh, yeah. sometimes I find her difficult to mm-hmm. get my head around what she's saying. Um, uh, basically the point she made, and I'm sure this was the, uh, the, I'm sure this was the quote cause it's the opening of the, the piece is how this is the, um, the perfect merger of commerce and art. Yes. Um, and what's interesting, so, so she talks a lot about how the, the Puzo book she thinks is, is pretty trashy, mm-hmm. um, but that, that what Coppola does is mines it for, um, for incidents, for details, for folklore, and then he adds to it a depth of feeling and, and these types of things. But what's interesting to me is that this movie, again, it is a long movie. It is a uh, epic, complicated story. At the same time, this is such a wild, wild, wildly successful movie. I mean, this is at its time. Um, this is, I think, one of the most successful films uh, at the box office. I mean, it's eclipsed by Jaws a few years later. Um, but this is a, this is an interesting movie to be that popular because it's again, it, it is long. It is. Um, violent it is complicated it's long and violent but it's also a lot of people sitting around in chairs talking with each other too like um, does this say something about what people were looking for in films in the 1970s or like like it's kind of amazing that this is as popular as it is at the time that it's immediately that and in a a broad um, has has a broad appeal in that way yeah, I, you know, I, I, I think it's, I'm not going to suggest that we have a, you know, a large audience that wants to identify with criminals, but I do think that it, it's popular because it's got all of those elements that we talked about earlier, right? I mean, th- th- if, if you want to watch a film that has a lot of violence, that appeals to people, right? The film's got that. But if you want to watch a film that talks about um, uh, a version of the American dream, right? The, we're kind of back to, to I, I believe in America. Uh, if, if you want to watch a film that kind of... Um, encapsulates a sort of mythology, right? I think, you know, people, people have always been kind of fascinated by the mafia, right? The notion that the mafia is, um, they're out there, in some ways they're, they're outside the law, in some ways they're a law to themselves. They're, they're a kind of a fantasy for people. There's this fantasy of these powerful families kind of flexing their muscles and going mano a mano with other families. I think that appeals to a certain kind of American identity. Um, and the other thing I have to say, Sam, is that, um, I don't know how many of those people who contributed the $250 million that the film earned in its, in, when it was opened, I don't know how many of them went back again, but the film, the film has so many great lines. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's the other thing. We've, I always said, leave the gun, take the cannoli. It's not personal, strictly business. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. You haven't mentioned that one. Uh, Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes. Um, so, there's so, so there's so much of the film that kind of taps into uh, a kind of, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, like a kind of psychology of, of, uh, of both tr- uh, kind of traditional values, but also kind of an outlaw outsider mentality. Absolutely. Um, is, there, is there anything else you want to talk about with this movie? I have a few little items, but. 
Yeah, I'm glad you put it that way. I have a few little items. Um, one is I, I, I took great pleasure, as you probably did, uh, in, in noting that when Vito is gunned down behind him, there's the poster for the January 11th Jake LaMotta fight versus Tommy Bell, which tells us this January 11th, 1946 was that fight. Um, we see the Bells, the Bells of St. Mary's is playing in Times Square. That film opened in December of 45. So we can nicely, you know, the film is very nicely, um, uh, gives you a very precise uh, time frame, which, by the way, was another battle that Coppola won. The, the studio wanted to save money and make it a contemporary film like The Sopranos, uh, but he really wanted it to be a period piece, and he won that. He won the battle to get um, location shooting in, in New York. Um, of course, I also want to mention that we've already seen the cultural resonance of The Godfather when we watched You've Got Mail, and we also heard about, you know, go to the mattresses and, uh, and all that. And then the final thing is, um, you know, th there's a lot of music in this film. And so at the wedding scene, they're singing uh, Shea La Luna. And so I decided to, to check on the lyrics of Shea La Luna. Uh, and, and here's part of the lyrics of that. Um, Mama dear, come over here and see who's looking in my window. It's the baker boy. And look, he's got a cannoli in his hand. So <laughs> I just thought. I just thought that was that was that was perfect. So I, he didn't have a gun, but he did have a canola. Uh, two other items that I I, I always find interesting. Uh, one is that the uh, uh, Babel, baby Michael Rizzi in, at yes. the uh, christening is Sofia Coppola, who goes on to have a great directing career herself, uh, Academy Award winner. Um, and the other thing that I find interesting about this movie, and this sort of speaks to uh, the the power of film to shape culture. Um, because this happens multiple times in film history, is that a lot of mob culture is shaped by this movie. Yes. There's lots of things that this movie treats as like, oh yeah, this is just how how it is. That Puzo says, like, I I made that up. I made up the idea of um the idea of of like the idea of the Godfather, like 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 that terminology, or um lots of other pieces that um that then the mafia then takes on, even though there was a lot of protesting um, about what this movie was going to be that, that it, it ends up shaping uh, the culture of organized crime in lots and lots of ways. And as I said, there's a long history of film doing this going all the way back to uh, a film like birth of a nation, um, which is based mm -hmm. on a novel by Thomas Dixon called the Klansman, which steals all kinds of iconography from Sir Walter Scott. And then when DW Griffith makes that movie, we see a resurgence of the clan now picking up things that end up really to have no roots in the history of the Ku Klux Klan, but they're actually things from Walter Scott. So film has this power to then shape people, um, you know, in, 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 in interesting ways and in, in sort of shape the way they think about tradition, even though even if the film is um, generating tradition. Well, that, that's a really interesting point, Sam. That, and that, that's why there was so much concern in the 30s about the gangster films, uh, that they were glorifying the gangsters. And in fact, that's, that's a big, that's actually a theme in Scarface, whether or not the gangster is being, is being glorified. I, I, I want to add two more, two more things. And one is that, you know, we previously, uh, our previous encounter with Coppola was, of course, Apocalypse. Now you've already alluded to Brando and that. Duval, of course, also shows up in that. But that's also a famously troubled production. And Coppola is one of those artists who seems a little bit like Terry Gilliam, uh, seems unable to avoid chaos when he, when he creates. Um, and, and he's always, you know, he's flirted with bankruptcy throughout his life. I mean, he's just one of those people who seems to, I don't know if he thrives on instability, but he creates instability and somehow he manages to keep overcoming it. And one of the deep ironies of the Godfather trilogy and Coppola's life is that the Godfather is ultimately a film that uh, is a critique of greed. Uh, and yet it has become, the series has become a cash cow for Coppola. He keeps going, as you mentioned earlier, he keeps going back to it. He, he re-edits it, he re-releases it. The Godfather has been edited and re-released like four or five times. I mean, and he's done that with Godfather 3. I don't know if he's touched Godfather 2, but he's kind of lived off the franchise. And he's actually making a new film right now, but he's using a lot of money that he's been able to get from, from the Godfather. So there's a really, it's a very deep, but also very American irony about that. Yeah, I'm actually I'm actually excited for I mean, I think he's 82 now 82. and he's kind of decided he's going all in on this movie in terms of like and it, he did this for Apocalypse Now in terms of basically like, OK, I'm going to sell my vineyards. I'm going to sell all these other things because I'm going to raise the money to make this. And I don't even know. 
uh it's called like megaopolis or something yeah, yeah i don't know what that's about but like i'm i'm very excited to i have not really had the opportunity to go to a movie theater to watch a francis ford coppola movie that hasn't that wasn't a re-release so like i'm i'm excited by the prospects of you know what does uh what does that look like and and he actually as i mentioned with the outsiders has been you know in the last uh 10 to 15 years been going through some of his other movies and kind of you know what to his mind fixing them and from what i've heard is uh is that some of the some of those changes which i think oftentimes you hear oh a director's going to go in and redo something that they did and you, that people are usually like oh please just let things be but i've heard actually some of them are 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 major improvements um to you know to to the films and that's that's a tradition more than 100 years old because uh henry james the for the new york edition of his novels he re-edited, re-edited every, every every one of them. Uh, to some critics' uh, taste, uh, he did not make them better. But at any rate, he he didn't stop tinkering either. So what do you have for us for next week, Barrett? Uh, I, I cannot resist uh, a temptation, and we'll see what you think of this. Um, there is a, a film in which Brando had the opportunity to reprise his role as the Godfather, um, and it's called The Freshman with uh, Matthew Broderick from 1990. And so I just feel like before we do a little more of a deep dive into the gangster genre, we should kind of go directly to a comedy uh, around the Godfather figure. So that's that's for next week, 1990's The Freshman. So don't don't confuse it with Harold Lloyd's 25 film, 1925 film, which is a great film too, but we're going to do the 1990 uh, Freshman. Well- and I should say, when I say next week, what I actually mean is two weeks because two Bethel's weeks. on spring break next week, um, and I will be traveling. So it will be the it will be uh, this will be coming out on uh, March twenty seventh. So you have two weeks to watch the freshman. I saw this movie when it came out, but I, it's the last time I saw it. So I'm I'm very excited. I I remember. Is there like a lizard involved? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. And, 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 uh, yeah, I also saw it when it came out, Sam. And I have to admit, I haven't rewatched it since then. But I did. I did. I did dip into a few reviews to make sure that we were, uh, it wasn't a bad choice and it's actually got a lot of strong reviews. Fantastic. Well, I'm very excited to, uh, very excited to, uh, to watch that movie with some fresh, uh, 2022 eyes. Barrett, thank you so much for recommending this film and for having this conversation. Um, if you listen, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the Godfather, like you should probably just go watch it. You'll do yourself a favor. It's great. If you're listening to this and you have seen it, go watch it again. It's fantastic. Um, (laughs) This is one of those where I still have one child who hasn't seen it yet. So I'm excited because that means I get to watch it again. Um, and I'm going to be working my way up to the, the Godfather uh, Coda because I'm, I'm actually really interested in, um, in revisiting that. And I have no particular feelings or affections for Godfather 3. So the fact that he reworked it, I don't really care. That's great. <laughs> all right. That's all the time that we have. But we will be back in two weeks to talk about the freshman in the video series.